Dear Lord God, we thank you for um, for the fun in summertime and just the rest that we get to experience during this season, I hope, for many of us. And we ask now that you would take something as trivial as romantic movies and that you would cause them to um, be a signpost pointing towards you. Would you indeed work through um, the signs in our culture to bring us to you, to draw our hearts ever closer in love to you, um, even as you have poured out your great love upon us, Lord Jesus. And so we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, this is part two, sort of, of a three-part series, but you can dip in and dip out, So, because they're kind of self-contained within them, within themselves. Um, last week, I looked at heroes on DVD, but specifically superheroes. And of course, by DVD, what I actually mean is streaming, because who goes to get a DVD anymore? I never bring it back to Redbox in time, and then it's like a $10 DVD, instead of if I had just rented it on Amazon or wherever, it would be a three or a four dollar film. So, or free, if you have any of those other online things. So really, we're talking about heroes streaming on these films. And partly because in the summertime, I know you can go to the pool to get cool, but otherwise, you're in the dark. You're gonna be in the dark, and so many kids are at home, and um, what are you gonna do with all those kids at home? And I can only imagine that parents are keen to let them watch more films or more shows than they would normally watch during the school year. So um, so I was looking last week at superheroes, um, and this week I'm looking at romantic movies. Next week I'll look at the genre of film that takes a true story and then depicts it on <laughs> film. And um, so let's ask the question, why would we look at film anyway? And I asked this a little bit last week, and I do this just a little bit anytime I teach on a film, um, because, because as Christians we can think, well, films are bad. I shouldn't, I shouldn't go to the movies all the time. I shouldn't do what I shouldn't enjoy it. And that's really um, a holdback from Puritanism. And, and yes, there are themes in the films today that are terrible. There's language that's terrible. There's violence. There's sex. There's stuff that's really going to distract us. And if that's the case, for um, it affects individuals differently. And so as individuals, I'd encourage you to know what affects you. Avoid what affects you negatively. Critique what you see always, even when you see it and you think, this is the most amazing film ever, and this is my favorite film. Ask yourself why. Ask yourself what maybe was not totally great about it, and um, to even begin to ask those questions can be helpful. But films are really the stories that our culture is telling itself right now. That's the way we communicate to each other. That's the way we tell stories, even more so, I would say, than any other media, except for maybe TV. Although we're starting to have, you know, there's this whole new opening up of um, home videos gone viral with YouTube, and that's a different kind of storytelling. But when we think about big picture storytelling, bigger narratives, film is the way we experience story as a culture. And stories are good. Stories have been good throughout all of um, human history because stories help us get up and out of ourselves. Um, they distract us from what's going on in our own life to show us something about the world or something about ourselves or something about God, and then they return us to our world with new insight. And I talked about last week, there are examples of the way stories do this throughout Scripture. Um, and I could go through several of them, but just, or you could go back and listen to last week, but just think about the parables of Jesus. Jesus taught in stories. Think even about the sermons that you hear, and what do you remember most? You probably remember the stories 
more than anything else that someone says from the pulpit. So with stories in mind then we, and movies in mind, um, I'm looking at these three types of movies and why these three types of movies. Well, I very often look at the award winners in the wintertime, and every year the award winners seem to just get darker and darker and darker. And so I think we feel like, well, why can't I just see a happy movie for once? There's something wrong with me just seeing a movie that makes me feel good. And what I would say is, no, that's just fine. Both kinds of movies do um, different things to us. Tragedy, dark movies, sad movies that make us think, they provide a kind of catharsis through the presentation of our worst fears played out in the lives of the characters that we look up to and we pity. If you're a crier in movies like me, that it's cathartic. You feel better afterwards. You think, my life is not like that, thank goodness. Or you learn and you see, my life could easily become like that. Oh dear. Um, so tragedy and, and um, dark movies can be good for that sake. Comedy is great. Um, the catharsis is different in a comedic movie because um, it presents something ridiculous in a character. And as we see what is ridiculous in someone else on screen, we begin to feel superior to that person. And um, that can be good because it helps us laugh. It helps us laugh at, again, those fears within, within ourselves, that we would become like that person. And we see comedies all throughout human history, but some of the great ones, and I would even say the first romantic comedies were really started with William Shakespeare. Um, there were some with the ancient Greeks and some, but his comedies were so great. I just think of A Midsummer's Night, A Summer Night's Dream, or As You Like It, Much Ado About Nothing, Love's Labor's Lost, all fantastic stories. So what I'd say about that, it's okay to like comedy. It's okay to like happy endings. My final point about why it's okay to like happy endings is because our story as Christians has a happy ending, right? So there's something, we have to think, there's something in us as human beings that longs for the happy ending. And it's because it's what we're made for. We're made for restoration. We're made for reconciliation. We're made for um, the fact that one day sin will be no more. Violence, destruction will be no more. And God will wipe away every tear from our eyes in that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. So it's good for us as Christians. It's good for the world to have happy endings, to point towards the happy ending. But the danger, the danger in this, and especially we see it with romantic movies, the danger is if we look for our happy ending through temporal means, through means that we can control or perceive that we can control, or specifically through another person that we think will be um, the perfect be-all and end-all, the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams in one person. That can be dangerous. And that's what we're going to look at today and what we've been looking at with heroes. So looking at superheroes last week, we looked at Anybody want to say who's here? Ooh, I'm so putting you on the spot. What do you remember about superheroes from last week? Well, the main superhero is Superman. My favorite. Yeah. In studying them, and what's it, what would you say is the main difference between, or I tried to underline it, maybe I didn't do it adequately, but what's the biggest difference between Superman and, and most of the rest? Well, the, uh, I remember that um, they got the self-made yeah. Uh, Batman. Yes. Uh, Spider-Man, I guess. Uh, yeah. Use 
Yeah. But um, he was sent from outside. And uh, I mean, I was stunned. I'd seen those movies and I was stunned at the gospel message. I mean, you know, the parallels yeah. of the gospel message that were in there. The parallels between Superman himself and yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. When you look at it, when you watch the 1978 movie and you hear his father, and now I'm going to get real nerdy, Jor-El, telling Kal-El, which is Superman's real name, saying to him, you are my, I am sending them you, on, I'm sending them on earth, you, my only son, and then sending him off. And there he is. He is like a god. And in some of the later movies you hear, Lex Luthor hates him because he's like a god who won't share his power with anyone else. Um, there are just so many parallels, and when you see him getting beaten up because there's some kryptonite nearby, it's almost painful because he's so virtuous. He is perfectly righteous in the way, in that world, in the way that Jesus Christ truly is the only righteous one. And um, the world hates and rejects the righteousness of Christ because we feel com- we feel condemned by it. We see our own unrighteousness in the mirror of Christ's righteousness. And you, saw, you see that even in Superman in the way they, um, in the way Lex Luthor in particular is the focal point of hatred for Superman. Well, so, in, thank you for that, Drew. <laughs> that, was, that was very encouraging to hear that that was conveyed. Um, but these heroes, so in, one of the reasons why I started with superheroes and with Superman is because they're the easiest ones. Because it's so clear that he is, we're not supposed to look at Superman and say, I want to be like that, even though every five-year-old boy wants to wear a Green Lantern costume or a Superman costume or Captain America like my nephews or whatever it is. They want to be a superhero. We still know, even as adults, that's not, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not going to be like that. I actually need someone like that. I feel the need for someone who's going to come and rescue me. I feel the need for Jesus Christ. Well, with other heroes and other kinds of films, it's less obvious what the heroes are like. It's less obvious that the heroes, uh, because the heroes feel much more human to us, they feel much more attainable. And so I wanted to look today, why do we like heroes? Why do we like having someone to look up to or someone to emulate, someone to strive to be like, someone that we can trust or believe in someone that we want to be around. What do you think? Why do we like that? There's something about us as human beings that we like that. I see it in the way, and this relates to the, oh no, no, don't do it, don't do it. Oh, it's back. Okay, good. I see this in the way, um, even in pop culture, the cult of Hollywood, and I say cult of Hollywood, means that people will obsess over who's doing what and who's um, you know, all of these particulars of their lives, and it always reminds me of Greek mythology, um, because it's almost as, as more sorted than Greek mythology, but Greek mythology was so sorted when you think about all of the gods consorting with one another and coming down and corrupting human beings or having these relationships with human beings that were not always ad- admirable, and yet because they had this power, they were able to do it. Well, I would say that um, earthly heroes people that we look up to, whether it's um, someone that you think is really amazing, one of your friends, that you just think, wow, I'll never be like her. I can never be like her. Her hair is always perfect. Or how does she stay so thin? Or um, she's always ready and on time, and she looks great. How is that possible? Or she's just kind, and that's not 
time. Or we see it, I'm trying, I, I'll try to get into the male mind. How, how do you look up to other people around you? Um, but, or I won't try, I won't try. You can, you can figure that out for yourself, sorry, gentlemen. But with, um, when we look at, on film, we see a different kind of hero pre- presented in the main characters very often. Um, and we, we like <laughs> earthly heroes because they seem to provide us with hope. They seem to make us think, I could be like that. But ultimately, we end up feeling condemned because we compare ourselves to them, right? Just like the world that hates and rejects Superman, we actually secretly might hate the girl whose hair is perfect or um, the person who's always on time when we cannot possibly ever seem to get anywhere on time. We end up hating that person because we feel the distance between them and us. We feel like we'll never be like them. Well, so with romantic heroes in romantic films, I think that they end up being, and especially among teens, if you have any teens in your lives, romantic heroes become like rock stars to us. If you just think about the phenomenon of um, Elvis or the Beatles in the 50s and 60s and the way girls went wild, um, the way um, they still go wild for, I don't even know what the current boy band is, but they do, you know, and... Um, and I think about it in the way we look up to um, romantic heroes on film. And I think women are more susceptible to this than men, I'd say. But I think men still think, oh, that Jennifer Aniston, she's great. <laughs> um, or women think, wow, Colin Firth in Pride and Prejudice uh, is, lives on in memory. There, were, there have been some really com- good comedic spoofs about that. Or Hugh Grant in the 90s when he was doing all those romantic comedies. Whoever it is. We seem to turn these mere mortals into false gods and demigods by our adoration. And I think about them then like those Greek heroes who became gods, um, the stories of Hercules and um, so many psyche, so many other mere mortals within Greek mythology who attained to Olympus. But we look at those Hollywood stars as they are, and we look at them on film in their film personas, whether it's um, whatever character they're playing in the latest romantic comedy, and we think... I want to be like that person, or even better, I want to have that person. I want to be with that person. Um, there's this romantic idea of my life would just be better if that person were in my life. And so we're going to look at that phenomenon today, and we're going to actually um, crush it, hopefully, And um, that look by looking at what is true love. What is the real romantic ideal? What is the real hope for us? And why is it that our hearts are so keen to look up to this other vision of someone else or something else? Um, or being with someone that would be as perfect as what we seem to see on film. So um, I want to start off with this question of true love. What, what in fact is true love? And I won't play all of this because it's very long. But I forget the year. High Society, the remake of the great romantic comedy Philadelphia Story with Catherine Hepburn. Why would you ever need to remake something with Catherine Hepburn? But they did, and it was just as good, although I still prefer the black and white Philadelphia Story. But...
this is the less good part of the song where he starts to talk about the guardian angel. But true love, and of course, with Bing Crosby crooning, you can't help but love the song. I give to you and you give to me. True love, true love. Well, I first encountered this song um, as a little girl because my grandmother loved this movie. High Society was her favorite movie. And she would sing this song to my grandfather all the time. And they, uh, they even, as they got quirkier in their old age, I'll never forget them showing up one summer with temporary tattoos. And his temporary tattoo on his hand said true. And her temporary tattoo on her hand said love. And they put them, they were really, they were hippies from the 70s. But they just were so quirky and so funny. Um, but they really, they had a very long marriage. And, um, and she had this idea in that he was her true love and they had true love their whole lives. And this song, she would croon to him as a reminder of, no, we do truly, really, truly love each other and we give each other that true love. Well, what does that mean in the context of a, of a romantic relationship, in the context, really, of marriage? And when we look at scripture, we actually don't have, we don't have a lot of examples of it which is so fascinating, right? We hear the word love. If you did a Google search on Bible Gateway of, or a search on Bible Gateway of love, you're going to get a lot of hits, especially in the New Testament, the word love. But the love of, of, um, of this kind of romantic love is not found very much in Scripture at all. Um, we see it maybe once in the Old Testament. If you think about the story of Jacob with Rachel and Leah, he, um, he, when he leaves his father and mother and he goes to Laban, his mother's brother, he sees Rachel coming as this shepherdess girl. He sees her and he sees her and he's so um, inspired by her beauty that he takes this huge stone from on top of the well and he does this feat of incredible strength. He's showing off just like a, a, a teenager. He's showing off because he thinks she's so cute and he kisses her on, on the mouth and weeps aloud, and it seems as though it's because he's finally found his family after he's been wandering, he found his mother's brother, but it also, we find out later that he will do anything for Rachel, that he um, and his tricky father-in-law tricked him into marrying first um, the less beautiful sister, um, Leah. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, Genesis says. Jacob loved Rachel, and so he marries Leah, and works another seven years, 14 years total, in order to be able to marry also Rachel. And then you see, again, you see some polygamy in the Bible, but it's never happy, is it? And you see that Rachel and Leah vie for attention and vie for love and vie for meaning um, and identity through children, through um, their husband's love. And he loves Rachel more than Leah. But God sees this. And again, blesses Leah, opens Leah's womb so that she's the one who bears children, even though Rachel's the one who has the man's love. So there is this idea of romantic love versus not romantic love in that setting. We see it, of course, distilled and settled into the book of Song of Solomon, which is all one love letter. Love letters back and forth between um, a man and a woman. And some of the words are so beautiful. Some of the images are glorious, even though we can't fully understand all of them because um, likening someone's teeth to a flock of sheep or goats doesn't seem like something we would say today. And yet this, this love poetry, it's ancient Hebrew love poetry. But here are just two verses from Song of Solomon that look at this specific kind of love, romantic love. 
set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. It's valuable, it's strong, it's fierce. Many waters, many kinds of suffering cannot quench love, strong love. So we see there that is, that's really romantic love there in the Bible. Um, and yet that idea, this very slim idea of romantic love that's really not gone on to in Scripture is fleshed out with so many other different kinds of love. And if you've ever read um, C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, he does a great treatment on looking at four different kinds of love in the Greek mindset, and certainly that influenced the New Testament, looking at um, storge, which is familial affection, the love of mother or father for a child, and vice versa, um, philos or friendship love, the idea of having companionship and the idea of liking someone and just having things in common. Then that idea of eros or romantic passion. And finally, um, the idea of agape or charity or that self-sacrificial, self-giving love. Here's just one, uh, I hate to read aloud, but I'm going to, sorry. I'm going to read one quote um, from his about friendship and then one quote about um, romantic love because I think they're both, he just gets at it in a really good way. Friendship rises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste with the, uh, which the others do not share and which till that moment each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. It is when two such persons discover one another when, whether with immense difficulties and semi-articulate fumblings, or with what would seem to us amazing and elliptical speed, they share their vision. It is then that friendship is born, and instantly they stand together against an immense solitude. Here's that idea of companionship, of common interests, of like-mindedness, of um, connection, and that's something, again, available to us, single or married, um, but it is something also that happens um, in with marriage, in, in some of the best marriages, I would say. Um, and then on Eros, he writes, The event of falling in love is of such a nature that we are right to reject as intolerable the idea that it should be transitory. In one high bound, it has overleaped the massive of our selfhood. It has made appetite itself altruistic, tossed personal happiness aside as a triviality, and planted the interests of another in the center of our being. Spontaneously and without effort, we have fulfilled the law towards one person by loving our neighbor as ourselves. It is an image, a foretaste of what we must become to all if love himself rules in us without a rival. It is even, well used, a preparation for that. So he talks about this idea of falling in love as being um, this overwhelming desire spontaneously to fulfill the law for this one other person, to be and do whatever is needed in that setting. And um, then with Eros, though, with romantic love, it is all too often fleeting and situational, isn't it? It's depending on the music or the lighting or the way the person looks or the way the person um, is in a good mood or in not a bad mood. Um, 
in, so this is where our culture doesn't know what to do with romantic love when romantic love fails. And they don't know how, um, how can a marriage, how can a relationship um, continue without romantic love? And how is the romantic love regained when it feels like it's been gone for so many years? And I think it's interesting. I think some of the films that I'm going to look at today do address this and do look at that. And yet they only point towards what, um, what the Christian truth is about love. Um, because the Christian truth is that um, within the context of marriage, um, true love encompasses all four of these kinds of love played out over a lifetime together. And that actually um, the agape, self-giving love, that love that comes from God himself poured into our hearts, that, um, that moves us to um, give outward and towards another despite ourselves in the moment when they're being the worst to us. Not in the moment when they're being delightful and fulfilling the ideal of our romantic ideal, but when they're being selfish or when they're being rude or when, um, when they're, um, they haven't bathed or they haven't, whatever it is, whenever they're being really themselves, that's the moment when they most need that agape love. And as Christians, by giving agape love at that moment, and agape love, again, is the love all throughout the New Testament. It's this idea of um, desiring the goodwill of someone else of wishing well, of working towards that goodwill for someone else. It's that idea that we hear so many times at marriages when um, 1 Corinthians 13 is read. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So there we have this idea of God's own love for us, which is not based on how we are doing, on what we look like or how well we're doing in his eyes or in anyone else's, but it is that idea of him imparting to us his love when we least deserve it. And so I'm going to look at a couple of clips from films that either do this or don't do this. Um, so here's, and um, again, forgive me, any 2000 and aught or 2010 film is going to have a lot of a lot of sexual mores that obviously we don't endorse as Christians or a lot of things a lot of language that hopefully we probably won't use in our daily lives so again forgive me in advance for that um, I want to just point out before actually before I show this well let me sh- let me show this first one because this is a good one where there's been a loss of love <coughs> So you're a mystique? I am. What is it that you do? I'm a poet. <laughs> and I'm a dreamer. <laughs> no, really. I'm... Oh, you're really a poet? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. This is Albert. Hey. Uh, How's it going? You know, my friend Eva was just telling me that there is not one guy at this party that she's attracted what? to. What? It's okay. There's no one here I'm attracted to either. <laughs> All right. Great. Some guy you met at the party wants your number. Hi. Hi. Oh, did I get the date wrong? No. Why? Because you're wearing your pajamas? It's Sunday. I have to be comfortable. Oh, good. This is my daughter. Wow. She's stunning. Here's mine. She's beautiful. I don't know what my life is going to be like with this whole going away of college thing. I guess we should develop hobbies. Actually, I leave. Like baskets? Yeah, I do it in the garage. Really? No. <laughs> Hi, Dad. Hey. 
daughter. There's a lot of friends. You think they have threesomes? Yes, why would you say that? I know, but apparently it's what they're doing these days. I'm afraid that window's closed. There is a window? So, what about you? Do you have a boyfriend? Yeah. What's he like? He's funny and comforting. What a kiss. And sexy to me? Yeah. My ex-husband and I have zero in common. And I was completely repulsed by him sexually. Oh, God, no. Just a second. Albert! Hi. Remember that new client of mine? Well, it turns out she's Albert's ex-wife. Stop seeing her, please. I don't have anybody I can bitch to. You can completely bitch to me. He was very clumsy in bed. Oh, my God. Oh, he'd go on so many diets, and then he would cheat. And he has no friends. I have lost all perspective. I've been listening to this woman say the worst thing about the guy that I'm starting to really like. She's like a human trip advisor. Albert is not a hotel. If you could avoid staying at a bad one, wouldn't you? Oh, my God. You got any calories in Guatemala? I'm gonna get you a calorie book. You're picking on him. No, I'm not. You are. That was embarrassing. Calorie book. I'm obviously gonna find your calorie book. Why do I feel like I just spent the evening with my ex-wife? Oh, that's brilliant. One of the few real comedies that's, you know, romantic comedy for adults, right? Where, again, they're middle-aged, they have children on their way off to college, they're both divorced, they've both been around the block, they've both had their heart deeply broken. They both have been in relationships that ought to have been loving and yet were not. And in the way they talk about those relationships, I tried to get you some clips of it, but here's a couple of examples. You saw Catherine Keener as the other client that Eva is, um, or the client that Eva is working for as a massage therapist. And she hears all this stuff about the man she's dating. And, but, but not until, she doesn't realize until halfway through the film that, that, that the connection's been made. But um, Catherine Keener talks about how he's not a grown-up because he, you know, she bought bedside tables when they first got married. And then when they were divorced, she, of course, took the bedside tables with her. And he still hasn't gotten his own bedside tables. He just puts his books and his, or whatever, on the floor next to the table. What a, what a child. Why hasn't he grown up to get bedside tables? She has this arbitrary expectation, uh, this arbitrary um, thing that she would hope that he would do or that, um, or about the onions. He hates onions, and she would always put extra onions in the guacamole because that's what she likes, and she would then start to gag when he would move around the guacamole to get only the guacamole and not the onions. And so that was one of her other big harps uh, against him that led to the divorce or his weight. And you hear him confess to Eve at one point that he would actually cheat on his diets just to make his wife mad intentionally. Um, so here you get really into their their marriage. Then um, you hear about Julia Louis-Dreyfus's Julia Louis ex. There was also a lack of love in her first marriage. You um, see them at dinner together with their daughter as a graduation dinner. And he orders more bread even though nobody at the table wants it except for Eva. And Eva's going to eat all the bread but she can't because she can't control herself. She loves the bread, but she's trying to watch her weight. And so he's always ordering bread or keeping, and he did that. And that was one of their big contentions in their marriage is that he just would bring bread into the house intentionally, partly probably to make her mad, knowing she couldn't control herself or wasn't willing to abstain from bringing it in the house for her benefit. So then you see this lack of love, lack of 
um, of giving, lack of willing to get, willingness to give the other um, something that they might need, or even to let go some kind of arbitrary ideal that they've got in their heads. Like Catherine Keener's saying to herself, well, the person I want to be with will like onions or will um, want, you know, want to keep their weight under control or whatever it is. Whatever her ideal is, she has a vision in her head of what it is, and she will not accept anything less. But Eva comes to a moment in the film where she, she says about her first husband, she says, didn't I know all those things about him that bothered me at the end, right before we got divorced? Didn't I know all of those things when I married him? And she admits to herself, I did. And seeing all of those things about James Gandolfini, now she's in a different place where she can say, I see all of those things about James Gandolfini, and I still like him, and I love him. And so it's a beautiful overcoming of selfishness um, and those arbitrary things that go into our romantic ideal that are really not necessary for true love, for lifelong love. And so there is this sense of agape in that movie where she is able to get over it, and, it, and it's a beautiful thing. Um, so I kind of told you a little bit about the end, but, um, but you'll, it's still worth, worth seeing. Here's another one from, from the, I think it's 2010, from recently. <laughs> I mean, this, this is unbelievable. There's no city like this in the world. You're in love with a fantasy. I'm in love with you. Dad's here in business, and we just decided to reload a little bit. That's great. We can spend some time together. I think we have a lot of commitments, but I'm sure it's more. What? If I'm not mistaken, Rodin's work was influenced by his wife, Camille. Rose was the wife. No, he was never married to Rose. I hope you're not going to be as antisocial tomorrow. I'm not quite as taken with him as you are. I mean, he's a pseudo-intellectual. Slightly more tannic than the 59. I prefer a smoky feeling. Carol and I are going to go dancing. If you haven't seen it, it's, or if you have seen it, well, so Woody Allen, again, the master writer, director, the way he captures the, um, their relationship between Rachel McAdams and Owen Wilson, the way Inez chips away at Gil, it's just chip, chip, chip. She's never happy with him as he is. She's never happy with a writer who wants to write a novel instead of a screenplay. 
with a man who would prefer to live in Paris over Malibu, with a man who wants to walk in the rain um, rather than take a cab, with a man who'd prefer to eat a later dinner than an earlier dinner, with a man who doesn't like this pretentious friend of hers who's always making up stuff and pretending like he knows everything about all the art that they're seeing in Paris. You see this chip, chip, chipping. She's constantly nipping at him. There is a lack of love, a lack of agape, a lack even of romance, because without the agape, there's no environment for the romance, the eros, to thrive. And um, and so what you see is he he eventually wakes up, thank goodness, he wakes up and sees um, sees it for what it is, and and um, is able to find a different, uh, find a way out of it. But instead of this kind of chipping, and again, it's so easy. I I have no right to talk about marriage. We're only, we've only been married for six months, so we don't even know. We're just still in that generous, and we don't have to do anything about it, and it just flows out of us. Um, so I can imagine 20 years down the road, it will take work to get to that place of agape love um, again. And yet we're reminding ourselves and getting to that place where we offer that agape love to the person next to us or to, might not be in a romantic relationship, it might be in a friendship where the friendship is really gone. You feel like our interests are no longer there. How can I even spend time with this person? And yet um, the value of the person remains. And so continuing to offer sacrificial love. Um, And part of it means running towards the person when they need our love the most. And that running, that display of grace, responding to a mate or a friend or a parent with agape love, even when they are being unkind, rude, selfish, or simply not behaving according to your imaginary ideal or my imaginary ideal, it creates or it recreates an environment in which affection, those three other loves, affection, friendship, and um, passion can survive. This is the character of the gospel, isn't it? This is what God does for us. Um, God, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God takes us just as we are without one plea. And one of my favorite um, romantic movies, again, is going to be, um, it's a funny one, it's Bridget Jones' Diary, and it's not a recent one, so um, forgive me for that, but there's something about the way the main character, the, the dreamboat, Colin Firth, accepts Bridget just as she is. He knows her enough at this point in the movie that he sees all of her flaws, and he still likes her. And this is what he says. I don't think you're an idiot at all. I mean, there are elements of the ridiculous about you. Your mother's pretty interesting. And you are really an appallingly bad public speaker. And you tend to let whatever's in your head come out of your mouth without much consideration of the consequences. I realized that when I met you at the turkey curry buffet, that I was unforgivably rude and wearing a reindeer jumper, that's a sweater, that my mother had given me the day before. The thing is um, that what I'm trying to say very inarticulately is that, um, in fact, perhaps, despite appearances, I like you very much. And she responds, ah, apart from the smoking and the drinking and the vulgar mother and the verbal diarrhea. And he says, no, I like you very much, just as you are. 
Um, just as we are, without one plea, Christ dies for us um, and receives us. God receives us into relationship, a relationship of life-giving love. And that is the perfect love that we're longing for. That is um, the true vision. Just like we sang at 9 o'clock and that you'll sing at 11 o'clock, be thou, vi- be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Looking for that vision to be fulfilled in another person, even our spouse, can only lead to despair and to the kind of chipping away that we that some of these great writers and filmmakers capture. God, um, God is the one, the only perfect one, the only ideal, the vision, the true vision of love that we receive. And in his giving his love to us, he then fills us up with the ability miraculously to love others when they least deserve it. Well, so just to close, I want to point out my um, grandparents' marriage with their love for that song, True Love. They're both, they've both passed away now, so I think I can say it. It was lifelong, miraculously, I think. But it was marked by multiple infidelities, mental illness, alcoholism, financial ruin, and of course the inevitable illness at the end. They took each other as they really were. They gave, as they said, I give to you and you give to me. True love, agape love, not necessarily the romantic love that we expect. Um, And so that's the vision for us. All four of those loves um, contained within marriage, that creates the space for the true romantic love to thrive. Um, So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these stories that point towards your true love, your true love um, given in the ultimate sacrifice of your own self for us. And even, Lord, as we seek to serve others, as we seek to give ourselves sacrificially to those that love us back and to those that might not love us back, we ask, Lord, that you would again be the one to fill us, that you would again um, cause us to receive, to be in that passive place of receiving your love, and then, Lord, also give us, continue to give us the vision of your love, that when we try to put our trust in other earthly visions um, and they fail, would you give us the grace to fall back on our knees and to receive from you once again, and then in humility offer the same grace that we've received to those around us, even to those closest to us. In Jesus' name, amen.